It's very different from, you know, uh, uh, some, some sort of like <laughs> practical effect around a, a sword wound or something like that, where all of a sudden there's blood everywhere. And oh, my goodness. Um, uh, this is like you see it coming. Oftentimes there's a bandage involved. And welcome back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jackson. I'm Jacob. Welcome back. We're glad to have you on the show today. We are excited to be back for another week of the podcast, another great script. At this point, we are well into season 11 of the show. I think we make this joke every season, but like this is about the part of the season where we stop saying, it's early in the season and we're so excited by the blah, 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 blah. So we're, we're at that yep. point if you've been a regular listener. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep, we've kind of gotten into the swing of things. We've gone through uh, the first couple 180-degree turns in terms of content. Um, and uh, this week we're returning to one of uh, just one of the playwrights that we love getting to chat about on this show. We've done a number of his plays before. We're returning to Rajiv Joseph and his play Gruesome Playground Injuries today. Rajiv Joseph is just incredible. I, I think I've raved about most of the playwrights that we've had on the podcast this season, and that's just because we get to pick the plays. So we pick playwrights that we like a lot. <laughs> I will admit a bias in the programming. I love Regime <laughs> Joseph. And one of the things that is so incredible about what he does is that each of his plays are so different. And I know that that sounds like kind of a lame compliment, but it's not. Not every playwright out there has such a diverse library of subjects, yeah. yes, of stories, yes, but also of styles, of worlds, of voices. I mean, this play, to me, is nothing like uh, Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. This play is nothing yeah. like Guards at the Taj. This play is nothing like that play about LeBron James that he wrote that was at Steppenwolf a while back. I mean, this play is nothing like Mr. Wolf. So his ability to craft a totally unique theater object in each of his plays is almost unparalleled in my mind. Yeah, the sort of like ability to grab onto a new interesting concept and then let that concept be the guiding line of the whole play feels like very much his his zone um, of like and, and and it produces these really different conceptual things. Um, you know, it's 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 very different from like an O'Neill where you're like, oh, I'm always going to feel this way about halfway through O'Neill's play. Um, but <laughs> but uh, but yeah, you get you get you get a really different concept, really different uh, um, uh, application, and thus the way the characters present themselves is completely different. I'm excited to chat about this one. This this play has some like 
gruesomeness in it um uh and yeah. <laughs> uh and uh, sort of this <laughs> sort of this like theater of brutality almost a little bit incorporated into it so i'm excited to get to chat about it today i, I do think it's probably worth for this episode mentioning uh that this may be the kind of episode that you'd want to put your earbuds in for um or even potentially decide to skip because of the content of this play, which is uh, that it deals in some part with suicide, in some part with self-harm, um, and, and some part with sexual assault, and also just with, like, gruesome injuries, if the title didn't give you enough about that in the first place. So <laughs> yeah. if that's something that today is just not going to work for you in a helpful way to hear a conversation that will touch on those subjects, maybe skip this episode for now, forever. Totally your call. We've got a lot of great episodes out there that are about plays which don't talk about those things. Although I will admit, two in a row, maybe three in a row, if you consider. I think uh, three in a row. <laughs> uh, uh, go on, I'm going to struggle with the title. That's so annoying. Uh, not effing A, but the the play that goes with effing A in that pair by Susan Laurie Parks. Oh, In the Blood. Thank you. Oh my gosh, that was going to bother me. In the Blood, and then <laughs> yeah, Heather's, yeah. and then this play. I will admit, it's been a rough trio of weeks for the content <laughs> warnings type stuff. <laughs> So there, there's there's 10 other seasons of great episodes, though. If that's not something you can do today, please have our full permission and our full encouragement to find other things to listen to. Yes, yes. Take care of yourselves well. And uh, and when you are ready, if you are ready, uh, we will turn to the conversation <laughs> about gruesome playground that was injuries. So I don't know. We've never said it like that before. If you're ready, <laughs> turn to the conversation. If you're ready. <laughs> Well, before we get there, we do want to invite everybody to head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. That's all one word, no hyphen, no underscore. Patreon.com slash no script podcast. That's where you can become a supporter of the show. We are excitedly, happily, uh, gratefully funded by our patrons. This show is something that we love to do. It's a great part of our lives. It's not free to do. And I we try to say this as often as we can. It's not possible to do in this way without the support of the people on Patreon. So if that's you, if you're a supporter on Patreon, big thanks. You help make the show happen. If it's not you yet, just think about it. Go on over, check out the tiers. We try to make them really affordable. I think we've had a $1 a month tier for as long as the podcast has existed. And that is hugely helpful to us, even at that level. There are higher tiers, of course, if that's something that you can afford and that makes sense for your life. But everybody, no matter what tier they're at is contributing to making the podcast happen there are of course other benefits feel free to check them out over there um, but the major thing is knowing that no script couldn't happen without the people on patreon and you can be part of that community please check us out no script podcast oh nope that was wrong patreon.com slash no script podcast i jumped to that i was almost going to do the no script podcast at gmail thing that we do at the <laughs> end of the episode but i caught it just in right, time. Right, right. It's not like this is being recorded <laughs> and my mistake is now part of the final cut of the episode. <laughs> you can't prove it. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah. Thank you all so much for, for being patrons of the show. We'll see you over at patreon.com slash podcast. And now, back to the script.
back to the script. Uh, we're going to do just a quick overview of the life of the play and then the synopsis of the play. Um, as usual, we've already done Rajiv Joseph, so we won't be doing a full playwright context. You should go back in time and check out whatever our first episode was on Rajiv Joseph for that if you'd like it. Yes, indeed. Yeah. He's, so, yeah, Rajiv Joseph, we've done a number of his plays before, as Jacob has already said. We did Bengal Tiger at the Baghdad Zoo. We did Guards of the Taj. Um, uh, a well, highly lauded playwright um, with his uh, uh, kind of uh, both 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 his work in theater and also his work in film. Uh, definitely check out uh, if you if you want to check out more of his stuff. He's got lots of great resources out there for all the projects he's working on. Fantastic playwright. Gruesome Playground Injuries um, is a play of his that kind of lands it's 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 written in 2009 or sorry it has its world premiere in 2009 which is right around the debut of bengal tiger at the baghdad zoo just to kind of uh, locate it in your timeline of rajiv joseph um that original production starred uh, selma blair and Br brad fleischer in the kind of two main roles of the play uh and was done at the alley theater in houston texas it had another staging at the woolly mammoth theater in washington dc and then its off-broadway production opened in january of 2000 2011, and that was at the Second Stage Theater. Um, that production starred uh, Pablo Schreiber um, and Jennifer Carpenter, um, both of whom, uh, just in the little bit of interviews and stuff that I kind of looked up, both of them were kind of lauded for their experience working in gruesome television shows. <laughs> um, so <laughs> so uh, uh, if you know Pablo Schreiber from uh, The Wire or Special Victims Unit and the Jennifer Carpenter from Dexter, um, both of them have some experience kind of in, in sort of gory uh, t TV. And so stepping into Gruesome Playground Injuries, which has a number of kind of practical effects around uh, some some uh, uh, <laughs> some gore um, that's that's rather pivotal for the plot. Um, they, they were both kind of uh, highlighted as able to accommodate that pretty well, but also for their kind of intense performances uh, with these two characters who kind of go on this ride that Jacob's going to describe in the, in the synopsis a little bit more. The other part that I just want to highlight for gruesome playground injuries is it's a two-hander um and so there's plenty if you i mean if you google gruesome playground injuries uh productions uh there's plenty of colleges plenty of regional houses lots of theaters doing this play because it's really uh really visceral it allows two actors the chance to really dig into two parts quite a bit and it's also kind of kind of uh it's 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 nice to your stage design department <laughs> um it all happens kind of all the <laughs> it, all the changes kind of happen on stage together it's one location unified not one location it's many times but like it all happens kind of magically on stage so uh, so there's there's lots of ways to do this play well, uh, no matter where where you're at, and it continues to have a life produced in in lots of different houses. It is a darling. As as somebody who watches a lot of auditions in my life as a director and and working at a university, I watch a lot of auditions, and I go to festivals or all, all the stuff you do where you watch a lot of auditions. Gruesome Playground Injuries is a darling of the audition monologue, as many two handers yeah. are, because. If if you only have two characters, there's going to be, I would say, on average, a higher percentage of monologues than in other plays where you yeah. got other people to talk. <laughs> so thus it goes. There's some great monologues in Gruesome Playground Injuries that make their rounds on the audition circuit very, very frequently. 
Um, uh, one other small piece of context. I'm sure that I said this before, although I admit I didn't go back and re-listen to the episodes to find out. But I actually had the chance to talk with Rajiv Joseph about guards at the Taj for uh, some work that I was doing here at the university. And so uh, Rajiv and I we, I, we don't have any kind of a relationship. I don't ever email him. I never talked to him again. But I have been able to have a great discussion with him about his plays, his stories, the way that he thinks about playwriting. And that is one of the cooler things that I've done as a scholar of theater outside of the the artistic work that I do. So I'm always uh, very happy to come back to Rajiv Joseph material because uh, that has been a, a personal, powerful piece of scholarship for me. Uh, gruesome playground injuries, like Jackson said, is this sort of theatrical phenomenon. I'm going to try to describe the plot very briefly and move along pretty quickly because I think the real important part or maybe one of the real important parts is actually how the story is told. So the story is about Doug and Kayleen. It takes place over about 30 years of their life. Um, in the first scene, they are eight years old. And in the last scene, they are 38 years old. And this is a... Uh, close friends, maybe soulmates, constantly missing the boat on being in a relationship kind of play. In scene after scene, this friendship, almost relationship, kind of meets and rekindles and then, you know, fades back away into the background for some time until we revisit the scene again. The play is structured around these meetings happening when one of the two or both of the two are injured or sick for some reason, hence the title. In the first scene, uh, we meet Doug and Kayleen at eight years old in the school nursing office. Kayleen is sick. She has been throwing up. She complains that she frequently has an upset stomach and her parents think it is kind of in her head. Uh, and Doug comes in. This is going to become char characteristic of the two of them across the course of the play. Doug comes in because he has ridden his bike off the school roof and seriously hurt himself. I'm not going to go too much into all of the things they talk about. Being a two-hander, and I, I, I'm going to be very careful that what I'm about to say is not true for the whole play, but for the scenes, sort of psychological realism, deep character work, they talk about too much. These are two full human beings, and this is not a plot-centric piece. So they talk about a lot in their lives. We learn a lot of stuff about them. Kayleen's family life has been incredibly hard. Her mother walked out on them. Her father is kind of a POS. Uh, Doug is sort of constantly in all of these painful scenarios with the people around him, seems to have trouble sort of connecting socially, all kinds of different things. So how the play works from that eight-year-old scene onward is that in every scene, we jump forward 15 years, and then in the next scene, we jump back 10 years. And then we jump forward 15 years, and then we jump back 10 years. And then we jump forward 15 years, and we jump back 10 years. And in that pattern, we get to 38 years old. If you already know the play or you do really quick math in your head, you'll know that that means that we visit one age twice. We visit the age of 23 twice in that pattern, and that becomes a really significant moment in their lives. So real quickly, just running through, in the next scene, we're 15 years later, they are 23 years old. This is the scene that we visit twice. It is the night before Kayleen's father's funeral, and in this particular one of the two scenes, Kayleen and Doug meet in the hospital because Doug has blown one of his eyes out, literally, with fireworks. Um, Kayleen has, it doesn't seem like she's quite hurt 
herself, but she has driven off the side of the road, uh, probably because she's drunk, um, and slogged through the mud to meet Doug at the hospital. Again, many things are talked about in their personal life. We don't have time to cover them here. In scene three, we are, I'm, I'm, you'll hear my pages turning because I'm trying to make sure I don't miss one. We go 10 years earlier now they're 13 years old it's the night of some sort of school dance kayleen is uh sick again and um this time throwing up and doug has twisted his ankle from doing the limbo which is also connected to an achilles tear that he had uh sometime prior to this scene that has been repaired but his leg is never really fully quite healed this scene, they talk a lot about the sort of angst of being teenagers. There's a very crucial image at the end where Kayleen, after they have their first kiss together, she throws up into the trash can and is sort of mortified. And Doug forces himself to throw up into the same trash can. And this is going to be kind of gross, but I think it's supposed to be gross cute in the context of the story. They like look into the trash yeah. can and discuss <laughs> how their 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 throw up has mingled in the trash can. And it's, it's I think, supposed to be a, a really, connecting scene at that point um then they are uh we flash forward uh into the future some again in their early 30s doug is in a coma this is a sort of a one-hander scene because doug is out kayleen visits him in the hospital um and talks about how he had cold feet from from he was supposed to get married and ended up having cold feet got himself electrocuted she is there because across the course of their relationship thus far she has always for one reason or another touched his wounds and he believes that 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 has healed them in some sort of magic healing energy way and so she visits him she's got a, she talks all about all the stuff that's going on in her life which is clearly um substance abuse as well as self-harm a suicide attempt uh, but at the end of the scene she does lay hands on him and the stage directions call for her to seem to maybe think it's going to work and then feel really stupid about it um, and then we go backwards to when they're 18. Uh, Doug has twisted an ankle or gotten beat up in a fight. He shows up and Kayleen is, has, describes how she just had sex with her boyfriend for the second time and how it feels like something she sort of is obliged to do in the context of this relationship, which really upsets Doug. Um, it also is revealed at that time that Kayleen has been cutting herself um, she she does cut Doug in the context of the scene, and then they lay hands on the injuries. Um, and then we flash forward again, and they're in their early 30s. Kayleen is in uh, what seems to be like a treatment facility for substance abuse, and Doug comes to visit her. He's woken up from the coma that he was in several years ago, comes to find her because he cured, she was in a, a treatment facility. He brings with him uh, a statue that was on top of one of the buildings that was important in their childhood. He apparently got it because he was he's an insurance adjuster and was climbing on the roof, and the roof like collapsed under him and he found the statue um and again he sort of shows up bearing this gift kayleen sort of rejects him she's in again this this substance abuse treatment program um and then we are back to 23 and this time we're earlier in the night from the 23 year old scene we did before doug has shown up at the wake for kayleen's father um and basically tries to rekindle a relationship and a friendship with her that it appears they haven't had in some time and is roundly rejected if you follow the two 23 year old scenes then we know later he goes and blows up his eye with fireworks um and then finally we reach the end of the play the 38 year old scene 
Um, and in this scene, Kayleen shows up at an ice rink where we learn that Doug is now working, uh, doing the Zamboni like ice cleaning, fixing, re-shining sort of job. And um, we learn that Doug has had a, a fairly painful accident falling off a telephone pole that has cost him his lower legs. And he is now in a wheelchair, um, and she is there to lay hands on him and heal him because she feels obliged to do that. Apparently he was up on the telephone pole in some part because of her. Um, and we don't really know how the play ends from there. Doug rejects her attempt to heal him, and they just sort of sit together in this ice rink at the end of the play and reminisce on that gross, cute scene from earlier in their lives where they both threw up into the trash can. So that's just the, the, the sort of blitzkrieg, like scene by scene, little little bits at a time. What's really important to know is the nonlinear thing. That'll be in a lot of interviews. Everybody talks about it. I'm sure we'll talk about it. The jumping back and forth, 15, back 10, forward 15, back 10. But then also that all of the transitions of this play, all the different locations, the different costumes, the different ages, and the different injuries all of those changes happen on stage in front of the audience. It is a crucial part of the play. All of the gross injury makeup and such that the characters do, which is called for. I don't think that you're supposed to imagine these injuries. They're supposed to be gross and gory and done in full kind of theater effect makeup. But all of that is part of the play the putting on of it and the taking off, the transitioning of costumes. So typically, this is what you'll see in the stage directions between each scene. Lights shift. Music fills and Kayleen and Doug prepare for scene blank. Then we see the next scene. It says, however many years earlier or later. And then a line like this. The kids are 23. The kids are 33. The kids are 18, whatever it happens to be. And then uh, description, blah, 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 blah. The important sort of ritual moments of that are that Kayleen and Doug prepare for the next scene. And then in the next scene, this line, the kids are blank which I just love. I, I love that kind of ritual storytelling, but also this idea that we've known them as kids at eight, and so no matter what happens through the rest of their life, they're going to be kids to us. The kids are 38. I mean, what a funny sentence. The kids are 38. Yeah. And yet you think about like parents talking about you know, they're adult children. I'm sure they say like, oh yeah, the kids are, let's see, 26 and 29 and yeah, 34. The kids are, the kids are doing great. And it's like, these are adults with right. children, but they still are referred to as kids. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There, There is something kind of interesting about that in this play. They, like there is a uh, kind of youngness about these characters, maybe even like a, a like a, a tenderness about these characters that persists into their twenties, thirties. Um, they 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 both kind of have this, especially towards each other, this really genuine kind of childlike code <laughs> that they both exist, continue to exist through. And though these they are these kind of soulmates missing each other. 
um, as as you said in the synopsis, there is this kind of like still this this um, understanding between them, this vernacular, this shared something between them that whenever they come back together, they kind of renegotiate it a little bit again. But with the exception of the one scene where <laughs> where Doug is completely out in a coma, they they tend to find a way, at least partially in some of the scene, back to some of that shared language again. It doesn't always end with like resonance and harmony between them, but they they have this sort of like kids on a playground sort of, uh, um, of uh, feeling between them that, that, that continues throughout all of their ages. Yeah, it does seem like they're, they're people that are stuck, and that becomes especially clear as they become adults because both of them have failed relationships that were quite serious. I mean, Doug was literally getting married at one point. Kayleen discusses having lived with a guy for a long time that that sort of don't work out and they keep kind of coming back to each other. It's interesting that what you don't know and, and you know, if you study acting or directing or playwriting, of course, you'd want to imagine some of this. But what you don't know is what happens between the scenes, you learn a lot, you learn some important stuff, but you don't have a great idea all the time. Like, it's my understanding that between ages 13 and 18, they were very close friends, hung out all the time, saw each other all the time, for some reason weren't dating, but, they, you know, they were they were very close. And then that friendship kind of peters off over the next 10 years because Doug goes to college and Kayleen doesn't. I mean, these are things that I don't think I know for sure. Maybe there are even strong clues to that at some places. Doug says he goes to college. Kayleen says she's waitressing. But some of that is inference and some of that is filling in the gaps. But what seems clear is that this tight, close friendship that existed when they were teenagers hangs on, for better or worse, through the course of their early and middle adulthood um, and causes them a great deal of pain. Yeah, yeah, the, the kind of lasting effects of it. <laughs> um, the, the, so first of all, it causes them a great deal of pain. Also, they're like connected during some pretty painful moments as well. Um, so you have that sort of like this friendship, though it is painful often, was forged in the midst of being there for each other in the midst of uh, other pains, external pains, um, that they were able to be there for each other in, in somewhat odd ways sometimes. Like, especially Doug shows up for Kayleen just oddly sometimes. <laughs> but for some reason, over and over, it's kind of what she needs. Um, and so you have this kind of, like, odd connection between them, even though, yeah, it's just maybe this is a good time to bring in the gruesome the the uh just the the, the kind of through line of this play is pain um uh is definitely definitely physical pain um uh, whether sickness or injury uh throughout this play but each of the moments we check in with them they're they're going through these really weighty things. Kayleen's losing her dad. Um, Doug's in a coma. Um, uh, Kayleen is in a, is in a, a mental health Institute trying to recover, uh, after, after she had a pretty bad series of months. Um, uh, so, so you over and over have these like, Oh man, these two find each other every one of these 15, 10 years. Um, in, in just really hard moments of, of a full court press when they, when they need each other and they need someone and that someone happens to be the two of them that keep cropping up in their lives. 
And I think it's important to be clear that this is not sort of playwriting happenstance that they walk into each other's lives at hard moments. That's an intentional choice on the part of the characters. And based on this relationship that develops between them starting at age eight, and then what seems to me, again, I'm kind of inferring, but this is my sense, especially grows very close between the ages of 13 and 18. Because of that relationship, they intentionally walk back into each other's lives at painful moments. And they even reflect on the fact that like why is it that we're connecting only at moments where life is terrible and i as somebody that lives i live a long way away from my family you live a long way away from your family and a lot of the friends yeah. that i know and love live back in the same general area of the country as that i don't live anywhere near them And I don't just get to see those people whenever I want. Now, we try to make an effort to see them for good things and bad. But I got to tell you, if there was a funeral, we'd be going back. And so there, there is that sense of like the big traumatic, painful moments in life do tend to be a time where you reconnect with people who you're very close to. And that that is obviously a very good thing for a lot of reasons. But as these characters sort of experience, it can also kind of suck <laughs> that it's like, oh, this is yeah. <laughs> why we're finally reconnecting. My dad is dead. And finally you show up out of the blue. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 <laughs> listening to them talk about the last time that they talked to each other is like this. Rajiv Joseph had said in one of the interviews about this play that he kind of one of the ideas he had around this play was uh, a, talking to a friend who basically told his life uh, story by like the injuries that he'd sustain, sustained throughout time. So it's kind of like for these characters, you know, five years ago when you were in a coma or, you know, 15 years ago when <laughs> remember when we threw up in the same <laughs> garbage pan together. Um, so you kind of have this like calendar of pains that they've shown up for each other for. And yeah, these these moments of connection, it's a very, very, uh, very, uh, Hmm, this thought thought will take a minute to unpack, so bear with me. Uh, It's interesting how the kind of story of human uh, uh, closeness has changed in the last 100 or so years. Um, And this play, kind of written in the aughts, uh, post-90s, coming kind of, some of it it feels breathed out of the 90s into the aughts. Um, This moment when, you know, you have these close connections with people, and then you hit college, and then this diaspora happens, where you split out all over the place, and then you're trying to find a way back to these close relationships where you know 200 years ago your sphere of influence was like maybe 50 to 100 miles (laughs) and you pretty much stuck around close to that 50 to 100 miles and so you really stayed close-knit with a lot of people um that's not a thing as much anymore there is this like we shared this time together and it was so important and and life went on um, but I still want to be there for you in these moments when I can be. And it's interesting to see the two characters bring different uh, desires to those moments that they are in. You you get the missed the missed chance for them to be soulmates because when they show up, the, sometimes it's a surprise. Sometimes the other one wasn't planning for them to be there. Sometimes someone shows up with something really specific, like I need you to heal me or I'm here to heal you. And the other person is like, I don't want to heal you or I'm not open to your healing right now. <laughs> so so it is interesting to kind of note what um, no, note that sh- sort of shift in the human story that's being uh, addressed by Joseph in this play. 
Yeah, well, and and in 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 that same interview with Rajiv Joseph that you're mentioning, he describes why he structures the play this way, which I think really relates to that idea too. And again, you you hear this term thrown around a lot with this play. I actually think it's a little overused for how common this storytelling device actually is. But so so it goes. The play is non-linear, right? Ooh, it's not told in timeline fashion. <laughs> I can't tell you how many plays this week I've read that are also non-linear. I love this play, but like the emphasis on that about this play is very strange to me. There are so many other more sure, interesting sure, things sure, sure. than that part of it, but whatever. So it so it's it's in this back and forth, right? The fifteen and then the ten, the fifteen and then the ten. And Rajiv Joseph says that what he found so interesting about that was as people are recalling their lives, that is the way that they tend to recall their lives. Very few people just can go thing to thing and remember, experience the memory of, tell the story of their life chronologically, thing to thing, you know, and like good storytelling, quote unquote, like this causes this, causes this, causes this, causes this big thing, causes this, causes this, causes this, right? That's just not how we tell the story of our lives or remember our lives. He said, it's much more like this sort of event feeling going back and forth. Oh yeah. And then this, but actually 10 years before that, this was happening. And then way later on down the road, this other thing happened and this sort of jumping back and forth between major events in our life. It does feel like, you know, if, if you're going to tell the story of 30 years in the course of this play is like 80 minutes long, it's not that long at all. Trying to make it this sort of chronological, clear, uh, you know, uh, something causes something causes something story doesn't feel quite earned because it's only 80 minutes. But, but making it this sort of moving, floating back and forth memory, that does, you know, if you sat down with one of these characters at a bar or something and said, tell me your life, you get the sense that this might be how they told their life story or this part of their life story. And I also think it's interesting just because we happen to be us talking about this play that we sort of had that experience. We Jackson and I saw each other this <laughs> summer for the first time in a long time. And the last time we had seen each other, I don't know how much I've talked about it on this podcast, but I had just suffered a fairly major injury. <laughs> and so yeah. we had this experience of like, it had been several years since then, but somehow like time folded and it was like it happened the other week. But it, years had gone yeah. by, but there was this thing that connected us that was this painful, big emotional thing. And it like time just sort of jumped back and forth in this strange human memory way. That's <laughs> that's that's a fascinating insight for that. Just like really concrete, the sort of like, yeah, we, we the way we tell stories when we connect are these pinnacle moments in time. Well, pinnacle um, or I'm, I'm chasm. Just, Ups or uh, right. downs, you know? <laughs> and this plays mostly downs. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> for sure, for sure. I'm interested in your thoughts, Jacob, for, just from like a directing standpoint, the, the the time jumps in this play back and forth and telling that story of of how to, um, or how, how the humans tell stories and all that. Um, the way that this play moves between scenes and things like that, there's no specific prompt in the script itself to tell you how the audience tells the time has passed beyond like there's some, there's some things in the lines that can pay attention and things like that. Um, 
I've seen this play once before. Uh, it was it was kind of at a college level, and I and I hadn't read the script beforehand, so I didn't know about the time jumps, and I had a kind of confused experience the first time I interacted with it. It's much more clear in the reading of the script what's going on. But I wonder about that. How would you approach? You know, is are we doing Brechtian placards or projections, or are we kind of relying on the actors to kind of move us through time with mannerism um, or something else that you've thought about as a way to kind of navigate that that interestingness? Yeah, well, I, I have a couple of thoughts on that. The first is that, I, I mean, I, as a director, I do try to live into the idea that the playwright gives you what you need and that you don't necessarily need to layer things onto the script in order for the performance to be successful. So I don't think you need extra projections or items in the program or something like that to help. I think that with high-level acting and directing, good costume work, good prop work, that the play can work like that. And probably a little bit of the intrigue of how old are they? What, where is this in time is part of the journey yeah. of the story. You don't, you're not force-fed that all up front. Having said that, I think I might be interested in the idea of a projection or an item in the program which, which ran you through time. And some of it just has to do with how stinking fond I am of that line, the kids are blankety-blank years old. The ritual of it, the pattern of it, yeah. the nostalgia of it, the like real life, that's how parents talk about their grown-up children kind of way of it, that I I might be inclined, and it's because it comes right out of the script, to use that line, either in a projection or a program insert, and just say, the kids are 18. The kids are not, no, don't include the scene. And the scenes all have titles. I don't think I'm too interested. I, I would be potentially too interested in including that in the projection. But just the simplicity of the line, it's a line Rajiv Joseph wrote. The kids are Dada. The kids are Dada as, to help us just sort of dive in back to where we are in time. And also because I think the way he's written that stage direction is part of the story of the play. Yeah. 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 It's such a, it's such a, I agree with that, that line's presence in the script being so, uh, rhythmic, ritualistic, um, and, and yeah, the, the incorporation of it in that would be really interesting. It's an also interesting opportunity for like some good dramaturgy, um, either on your way into, into it, trying to like lay out things with the, the kids are X amount <laughs> years old, etc. on your way in with, with some, some fun posters or things like that. But yeah, yeah, I, I, I think I'm inclined to agree. I, I love the discovery, the, the kind of scavenger hunt that goes on. Um, and, and there is, and an, you're not completely alone in that. I certainly, some of my confusion when I saw this for the first time was, was a audience error on my part. Cause there is really good writing that says like, when did you wake up five years ago? Oh, five years ago, you were just out of the coma and you're like, Oh, I get it. I know where I am now. Um, in terms of time. So, so it's, it's all in there. I agree with you that there isn't a lot of over layering that needs to happen to communicate it well, but the, the little, little things like that, I think can like really enhance the audience experience of jumping through time with these characters. I feel about Rajiv Joseph the way I sometimes feel about Sarah Rule. Although with Sarah Rule, it's a I think maybe this feeling is a little more extreme, but I see it here too, which is that the stage directions, and this is a positive thing. Maybe I've said some things about Sarah Rule's stage directions in the past <laughs> that annoy me, but this is a positive thing. It, it's Jackson's just <laughs> laughing at me because he knows how I feel. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is this is a positive thing, Jackson, and it is that the stage directions are so poetic 
and um, lyrical and uh, just they have so much power in the way that they are written because of what a good writer both Sarah Rule and Rajiv Joseph are that I'm loathe to not give them to the audience. And it's just yeah, like, I, yeah. I, you know, the all the stuff about the rain in Eurydice, I just have always felt in Sarah Rule's Eurydice, for those not, who don't know, I've always felt like, how could I ever stage anything better than the way she just wrote that on the page? Like, what could I ever do better yeah. than that? And I feel a little bit about that, about Rajiv Joseph, too, sometimes. He's like, at the end of Guards at the Taj, his description of the flashback that whichever of the two guys has of the other guy that he dehands, it's like, I, I mean, we'll do our best, but I don't know that I can ever stage anything better than what you just wrote down. It's so beautiful. Yeah. There, there's, there's an interesting, so I, I love, I love getting to interact with playwrights like the ones you've mentioned. And certainly Rajiv Joseph today is, is, is one of those whose plays are benefited by the act of reading. Um, because this play, this podcast is kind of structured around, uh, the fact that we read a play and we talk about it. Um, uh, it's, it's, it is that kind of dramatic literature element. It's fascinating to do a play like Heather's last week, um, that, that, you know, would be enhanced by, by actually seeing the thing because some of it relies on spectacle because it's a musical to then transition into this one, which there's some spectacle in this play too, but to be talking about this particular um, uh, uh, aspect of it that is kind of only there for the reader to get to experience these beautifully crafted stage directions, very evocative, very ritualistic still, as we've mentioned. It's just fun to have the chance to talk about a play where you get to be as excited about the reading as you do as the watching. Well, yeah, and then there are, and just because you sort of said it in a, like, Passover way, I do think it's worth noting for this play, there are super-duper live elements. I mean, the, 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 there is not... I don't think you can really understate the role that the gruesome, bloody, gory injuries play in the play. And we've not, in our conversation so far, spent a lot of time on them, perhaps because some of what's being done there seems so clear already. But the power of them is huge. The second scene when he unwraps his gauze head and he's got his eye burned out and he's the, the stage direction description of him just sort of this like really grotesque monster that really freaks Kayleen out. Um, and this is after years of this sort of growing sense that she can heal things with her touch between the two of them. Very strange, very odd. But again, notably, going all the way back to the end of my synopsis, the important point to me about the injuries is that they're they are stage tricks, but they're tricks that we show the audience. I mean, I, it is actually hard for me, and maybe you having seen it once can speak to at least that part of the experience, to imagine what the experience of seeing the theater makeup or whatever applied then does to your experience of the wound in context of the scene. Yeah, I, I can kind of. Uh, I, I don't want to. I don't want to rag on this prediction or production, but they had some. They had a tough time with some of the effects. So the. So the. The 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 way with that, I think it would probably apply best. Um, is this kind of process of. There's, there's a little, I feel like, I feel like it's interesting that the start of the season, I've said the word alienation more than I, I typically well, yeah, and end it, up it saying applies, in the podcast. Again, we're <laughs> in this trio right now of In the Blood and yeah. Heathers and Gruesome Playground Injuries. <laughs> and we said that In the Blood and Heathers was like a 180. Gruesome Playground Injuries to me is like the tie between the two. 
<laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So there is this sort of like alienation that happens. This this degree to which you see a little bit behind the curtain. You can kind of imagine what's coming, um, even if you don't see it fully, and you know that it's a stage design. It's very different from you know uh, uh, some some sort of like <laughs> practical effect around a, a sword wound or something like that, where all of a sudden there's blood everywhere. And oh my goodness, um, uh, this is like you see it coming. Oftentimes there's a bandage involved um and there's the especially that scene scene two i think where he's slowly revealing that 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 uh that wound of his uh there's a very slow build up to it and obviously he had to put the thing on all on stage in front of us all in semi-light so so there is this sort of beat of like okay we're seeing we're seeing something that's crafted for me to experience something and what you I think what it invites you into is experiencing some of what Kayleen is going through experiencing some of what Doug is going through the trust that Doug has for Kayleen the uh kind of shock perhaps that Doug is to Kayleen um uh and and uh yeah so you kind of get to engage those themes rather than just your own shock and there's some of that too but but there's no there's less surprise involved um at with the shock of your own and you can engage other characters uh and what they're going through yeah i mean the, the i do think that it is a theater of alienation technique or idea this this like we're gonna show you how we do this so that you have some distance between you and that thing and can engage the scene from a different point of view. In this case, maybe not a, a political action point of view. But uh, I don't have to personally be grossed out or shocked, you said, by the sight of this injury. Because I know it's just this red paint that he put around his eye. So instead, I can experience Kayleen's shock of the injury. I, I wonder if some of it is not just because wounds are so grotesque and visceral and he wants them to be grotesque and visceral in the context of the story and not in the context of the room. I mean, this play really operates on those two levels, right? There are the things happening in the context of the psychological drama of Kayleen and Doug's life. And then there are the things happening in the room with the audience. Now, all plays do that to some degree, okay? I know. Yes, all plays function on two levels. <laughs> That's what theater does differently than film. But in this case, that that those two levels, be, it becomes a real difference. It's almost dramatic irony. I mean, weirdly, right? And maybe all theater of alienation relies on dramatic irony to some level. But this, the audience knows something that the characters don't, right? We know that that's just red paint. But the characters don't. Right. And that gives us a different lens on what they're experiencing. Yeah, yeah, it kind of it allows you to approach it a little bit differently, approach the the grotesquerie a little bit differently, and maybe even like I, I don't know, it's it's interesting to watch poor Doug like eventually go like, go on the journey of all the way to wheelchair, which is in itself like a really heartbreaking story. Um, it's really, really hard and sad, and also by the time he shows up in a wheelchair, you gotta just kind of have this dark chuckle at like oh doug what'd you do this time yeah. <laughs> how did you get in here um um and so so that sort of like you again like none of this is happening off stage the wheel it'd be interesting to do this production with every 
set piece necessary on stage the whole time because you would have that foreshadowing of there's a wheelchair on stage there's a there's a gurney on or not a gurney but a hospital bed on stage that Doug is going to be comatose in eventually um all, all that sort of stuff would be really interesting if it just is all living on stage and one by one they step into what each of those pieces are going to tell us absolutely I think that's all the time we have for this script for today. There's so much more to talk about, as there always is. Uh, the incredible Rajiv Joseph has again created something that is totally its own thing, different than anything else by him. And that is what is just so freaking fantabulous about him. Um, I, I don't want to discredit any of the other playwrights from this season. Susan Laurie Parks is also amazing, as are the people that wrote Heathers. But uh, he and Lynn Nottage, to me, are the two playwrights for which play to play the world and the voice are so distinct that it's it's almost like you pick it up and you have no idea what you're going to get into. There's just this like, yeah. this is going to be something totally different than anything else. And I'm here for it. I mean, Clyde's to sweat, like there's this, there's a bridge character between <laughs> Clyde's and sweat in those two Lynn Nottage plays, but the plays are nothing alike. Not even, so not even from yeah. the same world. It's amazing what playwrights with that <laughs> level of imagination can do. And so uh, props to Rashiv Joseph for this uncomfortable, strange, uh, probably very funny, um, but also incredibly theatrically interesting piece of work, Gruesome Playground Injuries. Yeah, super evocative play. Grateful for the conversation. If it has evoked any conversation for you that you would like to have uh, with uh, either us or anyone as a part of the NoScript community, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at the username at NoScript Podcast. It's a great place to have conversations because then we can respond, but also we can broaden the conversation out to everyone who's tuning in to the podcast. We also have a Gmail, NoScriptPodcast at gmail.com. Find us on any of those sites. We'd love to keep talking about gruesome playground injuries with you. Absolutely. If you liked this conversation or any of our other conversations, please recommend us to your family, your friends, anybody you know that likes stories, interesting scripts, theater, uh, conversations about writing, anything like that. Send them our way. They can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, where we're hosted, YouTube, all the places that you like to get podcasts. You can also like our Facebook page. It's an easy way to see the link to the new episode appear every Monday. And we we will see you next week for a new one. Yes, until then, when we'll be talking about another script, I'm Jackson. I'm Jacob. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. No Script, the podcast.